hey, great to see you this morning. Glad you're here. What we're discussing now is, is the Bible really a good book? Um, I, it, I don't know if you know, but when I was, when I was uh, way back <laughs> when I was in college uh, in my 20s, the big issue was, is the Bible true in the sense, is it contradictory? Does it, it, does it, does it have a consistency to it? That's not so much the issue. That isn't the way it's being attacked now. Now, there are some websites and people that attack the Bible's consistency. Uh, is it contradictory? Is it, is, is it reliable history? Can we trust it? Now, there's a moral outrage. The Bible isn't really a good book, so don't you dare use it to help you evaluate a political candidate, to help you evaluate a culture, to help you evaluate why. Because there are three, three ways Internet skeptics and even profs that are skeptics operate now with discrediting the Bible. Uh, we talked about this. One is to bring you the really odd passages that never get preached upon and ask you to comment on them. Um, maybe the classic example is the Old Testament where there's a passage about not boiling a goat in its mother's milk. It's like, what do you think about that? Have you heard that preached upon? So just the weird, odd, ancient text sort of eccentric parts of the Bible. The second is that, that you would actually believe a miracle could take place. That in an age of science and advance and in an industrial shifting to an information age, how could you believe that any sort of supernatural thing takes place at all? And then last but not least is the one we're talking about, the second option we're talking about today, are specific examples in the Bible that look morally objectionable. That look morally objectionable. So you can't call the Bible a good holy book if it's not good and holy. Um, so again, we've gone and expanded these out and done these at length. We've done the contradictions thing. We've done the, uh, okay, what ways are, is the Bible's credibility attacked? What are good reasons to think it's a divinely inspired book versus just a really cool book or a really important book or popular one? So today, we're going to go probably after one of, the, one of the issues, again, that I think deserves more of your time and sustained study. This will be, again, an overview. Um, uh, we're going to talk about the catalyst of, well, if your Bible in any way promotes slavery, your Bible should be rejected whole cloth. End of discussion, no questions asked. Okay, yes. Sure. It, what Duke's doing is with any discussion with people that think we're nuts or crazy, you always got to find common ground or similarities. And he's saying even in your naturalist atheistic story, you may not be heeding these very well, but you're having to deal with extremely, extraordinarily uh, low to no evidenced leaps. Um, rare, rare, rare events in your origin story as well. You could also say that in other stories as well. So if those are happening already in that origin story, can we at least get this idea on the table that there could be a supernatural realm with a being behind those, those sort of things rather than just think they just sort of happen, right, that they're anomalies. So you would take the anomaly factor and, and, and put that into the rarity with, with, uh, uh, with miracles. So, yeah, you could definitely do that to try to at least get the idea that the supernatural is real on the table. Um, so uh, in Ephesians 6.5, it says slaves should submit to their masters. Um, this, I don't know if you know this, uh, north of here, I, I believe uh, there's a billboard uh, North Boston, there's a billboard in New Jersey, it's got a hand with chains on it, and then it's got this, and it says dump the Bible. So uh, the American Skeptics Association have these near highways, um, so this is, this is the idea that if your book does this, gone, game over. End of, uh, end of discussion. Um, is God pro-slavery? Of course not, but we have to look at this and think about it, okay? Because this is probably the one that's brought before unsuspecting students who have heard that it's hard to get on in your Christianity at university or in that developmental time when you've left family, context, church, 
and now you have the basically the most heightened temptation point in your life and people you're paying that are smarter than you telling you that God isn't real or the Bible is not worth your time. Um, no, we're going to talk uh, about this now. Um, and just go ahead and say this as a caveat up front. There were some Christians that did attempt to make this connection. Now, I, I don't know if you've, I, I've, I've uh, read some of the anti-abolitionist Christian arguments to try to make the Bible say these sort of things. And I've read the abolitionist arguments that use the Bible to say this isn't the case for antebellum, pre-war, anti-pre, A-N-T-E, bellum, uh, uh, in Latin war, pre-war slavery. Um, so there, are, there have been Christians in the past in this country that have tried to do this sort of thing. Um, the, again, the arguments remarkably weak. Most of the time the abolitionists would, <coughs> would, would win against them. Probably the most famous discussion was during the three-hour debate between Lincoln and Douglas where Douglas attempted to use a couple of biblical references to show, well, you, basically it was one of these things if it's mentioned in the Bible. Well, there's a lot of things mentioned in the Bible, right? Remember this. If you don't ever remember anything else about our holy book, it contains prescriptive data, what you should do, prescribing like a doctor prescribes something, you must do this, and descriptive data, doesn't it? Descriptive is describing something. So it doesn't mean that every time something's mentioned, you're to do it or that God endorsed it. For goodness sake, God endorses David's bravery with Goliath, not what he did with Bathsheba, amen? So the Bible contains both of these elements. It's an ancient text of God's activity with a people group in history, and that's supposed to be our template for understanding what God wants of us now. So is God pro-slavery? No. There have been, sadly, some Christians, most of whom make really, really, I've never heard a great argument from the Bible for anti-abolition or to keep the slavery as it was practiced in uh in, uh, in 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 the antebellum South or in Europe at the time, um, but it is a uh, it, it is a it's certainly a a uh, um, it had ha- it has happened, uh, but it wasn't very convincing, which is why we had a civil war, which is why we had the abolition of slavery, led by listen, led by Christians, right, for a Christian motivation. How was slavery stopped in the 18th and 19th century, it was by Christians who said this is not the way God wanted it. Um, so they, they put themselves at, at risk uh, to do this sort of thing. Go ahead, Jude. Yes, yes. If you're going to do a sound bite. Yeah, very, very good. Um, another is this. The real unique thing wasn't that we had a Declaration of Independence and a Constitution and uh, had a sla- an institution of slavery economically, that wasn't unique to us at all. That was worldwide and, 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 and in a lot of ways worse in other areas as well. What was unique was that it was broken here at the cost. I mean, I don't know if you know this. You can't name, a, I, I put this challenge before a prof some years ago. You can't name another culture that had a group of about hundreds of thousands of strangers that were so morally motivated to end this for strangers that they were willing to put their lives at risk for it. There's no other culture that's ever done this. None. So then why did it happen here? Why was there, uh, there wasn't a, a war in Europe, right? But there was great cost for people. You think Newton, you think William Wilberforce. Why, why was it broken by the, that's the unique. The unique is there was some force powerful enough in a certain people group that they would risk their lives to the tune of about 300,000 people that risked their lives, civil war, right? at least 150, half of those, right, 150,000, for a group of strangers they never met and didn't know. So, um, so we, we, we need to talk about that. But here's the first place you go is this. 
you can say you've studied this. We studied this in that section where we were talking about challenges to the Bible, especially to challenges with regard to its inconsistency, alleged inconsistency, and this issue. Uh, again, this is just a flyover. One is this. Slavery in the ancient world was radically different than it was in the pre-war South, okay, or even across the world at that time. Um, I don't know if you know this. Uh, slavery was far more uh, deadly. It was far more practiced. There were far more slaves in South America. In Saudi Arabia, it was a worldwide practice. Europeans didn't invent this. But the main thing is, the, in the ancient world, I don't know if you know this, the, there's, there's, a, there's a complementary something with regard to what words mean what. I don't know if you know this. Like, doulos is the Greek word for slave in the New Testament. It also can be translated servant. Ebed is the, is, the, is the Hebrew word in the Old Testament for servant as well. There were radical differences between slavery in the ancient world, what the Bible's referring to, and slavery in what we would call the New World, or the, the 18th and 19th centuries. Radical differences. I'll show you that. Not only that, even in the ancient world, Israeli slavery or indentured servitor was radically different than the rest of the culture. Radically different. I'll show you these in a moment. Um, two examples, and these it's, it's not words to bust out just to impress people, but two words that, will sh that should crystallize for you just how radically different this indentured servitor was in the ancient world versus what, what we think of, right? We think of roots, right? We think about slavery. One is called manumission. Manumission was the idea that you could purchase your freedom. You could earn enough side cash to purchase your freedom and get out of debt and leave your master, right? Now, that's radically different than the experience we, we, we see for people even in America or, or worldwide uh, in the 18th and 19th century. The other is peculium. Peculium. Peculium was a, where you could own land or have a business. Now, again, that sounds radically different than what you, we saw depicted uh, in Roots. This week, I'll send you in your weekly email um, Thomas Sowell's discussion. He's got an incredible chapter um, on this in one of his books on just what worldwide slavery looked like even during this time period. Um, but manumission and peculium are, are, are really, really big. Let me give you 10 quick, and this is, should be, if it's not in your handout, I can send it to you this week. Um, actually, look on you. If you got your handout, would you look and see? Do you have the 10 differences between ancient? Okay, good. You've got it. We'll just go over them real quick then if you've got them there. Um, because you can look at them right there. Ten quick differences that you can discuss with somebody and say, okay, these weren't exactly the same institutions. They have the same name, but uh, these aren't exactly the same institutions. So let's look at these real quick. Indentured serviture offered a means to deal, to deal with poverty. Okay, um, again, you're not, you don't have a bunch of jobs waiting to be filled in the ancient world. You don't have a, a lot of retail jobs for single mothers in the ancient world. You largely had subsistence agrarian farming. So uh, believe it or not, some people sold themselves into, into servitude, into slavery. Why would they ever do that? Because they couldn't survive otherwise. So they thought, well, if it's a big enough property and there's enough abundance there, okay. In the ancient world, sometimes you would voluntarily sell yourself because of the, the, the lack uh, or your lack of skills or some sort of life event that happened. Second... Um, racism was never a motivation for ancient slavery. Uh, anybody could be a slave of any ethnic background at any point. And especially when you think about, we talked about the Old Testament being a time period when there was conquest. 
uh, if you were a conquered, regardless of your ethnicity, uh, sometimes you would be put into indentured servitude for a time period. Sometime, but most of the time it wasn't indefinite. Kidnapping for the purpose of slave trading was illegal in most ancient cultures. Are you starting to see radical differences? This is, by the way, when you look at some of these abolitionists using the Bible versus anti-abolitionists, one of the places the abolitionists would go and say, the Bible capitally punishes kidnapping. Right there. So that would be the way they'd begin. The abolitionists would begin the defense of the Bible and debate. So if God's saying no kidnapping, we don't have a justification for what's going on here, regardless of who did the kidnapping. Um, third, enslaved people often ne were not treated as mere property. Uh, that doesn't mean they weren't sometimes treated harshly, but they weren't treated as mere property uh, to be traded uh, about in the ancient world. Um, cruelty was strictly prohibited and punishable by law in most cultures. Uh, so the kind of cruelty and, uh, and there, was, you know, there was legal recourse even for slaves in the ancient world. Uh, slavery was never operative from birth. You weren't born into being a slave. Um, you may be born into a slave family. That didn't automatically make you owned by the master. Uh, slavery was never a permanent condition. That is one of the probably most one of the biggest radical differences between ancient slavery and what we call antebellum or pre-war South slavery. Um, indentured servitude was entered into and ended voluntarily. So again, I've told you as radical as that sounds, there were people that would to survive would sell themselves for a time period into um, into uh, slave what we call slavery. Uh, Enslaved people had rights in some cultures. Uh, in fact, m in most ancient cultures, they had rights. Um, and then last but not least, enslaved people had access to an appeals process. Now, if you can't see there's radical differences there, um, um, then you're probably not paying attention uh, well enough here. So, um, so again, remember, even if you do it with these technical terms like manumission, your ability to buy your own freedom, um, peculium, your ability to own land or a business, um, again, puts this in a, in, in a radically different uh, category. There are three basic reasons uh, that someone would become a slave or an indentured servant. Debt, crime, and free choice in the ancient world. Debt, crime, and free choice. Sometimes as a criminal sentence, you had to go for a time period, be someone's, do whatever I want you to do. Um, I don't know if you know this. Uh, we have recourse in our founding documents for prisoners to be able to be to do some undesirable work. I don't know if you've ever seen a crew work on a railroad track or a prison crew clean up the highway. Um, I mean, if you think about it, they're not getting anything, right, for being out there. So um, that is a type of ancient indentured servitude we brought into the modern world as a, as a kind of a payoff uh, for your, uh, your crime. Um, so I, I wanted to bring those 10 to you. Um, I also wanted to put a summary, as interesting as this is, Israeli slavery in the ancient world was even more radically different. Israeli slavery was even more radically different. Again, closer to indentured servitude. Um, and I'll just, I'll try to make this a little bit more quick. Um, but Israeli slavery, if you summarized it, was even radically different than other ancient Near Eastern slaveries or indentured servitude models based out of the word of God. Um, how so? Um, no abuse. In fact, the master could be killed it says in the Bible, if a tooth is knocked out or a black eye is there, there will be fiscal as well as punishable crime right there in the Israeli culture. Um, obviously, again, no to kidnapping uh, in the Hebrew culture. No to murder. You, you know, if you killed them, you're going to be killed. So, um, so again, you're, 
you're seeing this kind of really, really different as opposed to, say, um, you know, a Canaanite culture or an Egyptian culture, that superpower at the time uh, of uh, the Mosaic Law. Uh, no to trading, no slave trading, none of that sort of thing. So, uh, so you have a, a radical difference between ancient slavery, what's referred to in the Bible, um, uh, and, and far more context for an indentured servitude, and then you have even a further radical difference between what the Israel's in, Israelis engaged in uh, post-fall and what the rest of the culture around them, the Mesopotamians, the Phoenicians, the Amorites, the Hittites, those sort of things. Holly, go ahead. Yes. No. Yes. Yeah, I mentioned that conquest ethic being the normative thing. It's, it's again, it's something to really understand about the, the world the Bible's depicting as a, history, as a history of God's interaction. Um, in other words, it's not like you had all these options. Even the options in the 18th and 19th century when you're starting to get, you know, the, the post-industrial sort of options, um, you just don't have that. Israeli slavery put you on a trajectory of freedom. I don't know if you know this. Every seven years, you're free if you chose to. Um, uh, they affirmed the honor of the person that was serving them. They weren't treated like second-class citizens. And last, to inclusion and opportunity, you could worship with, to a limited degree, the Israelis, the Hebrews that you were that you were uh, um, uh, that you were you had connected yourself to with this sort of thing. So I, I wanted you guys to to see these sort of things and at least understand. There's far more to be said about this subject, but when somebody, it's too quick of a of a, of a knee-jerk reaction to say, see, your Bible's pro-slavery. And you're like, have you ever looked at the differences? For goodness sake, when Rome comes to the fore, uh, a third of, of, their, of their constituency are, are slaves. Those slaves could be judges in a court of law, in a trial. They could mobilize small armies, smaller than a legion, but they could mobilize armies. That's radically different than what we, do you understand what I'm saying? We're going, wait a second, slave. Um, uh, the Bible puts us on a trajectory of abolishing uh, slavery. You look at what Paul does in Philemon, and clearly, um, you almost see Paul doing the very same thing. Like, look, okay, this is, uh, it would be as radical in the ancient world to say get rid of this completely as it would be for us to just say, well, if you're a Christian, you're going to stop driving a car and you're going to stop using cash currency or credit cards. It, it, it was one of those things that needed to be eradicated slowly. Um, it's the same thing uh, when uh, Lincoln had his famous discussion with Douglas. Well, why wasn't all men are created equal enforced right from the jump here? And he's like, it, it couldn't be. There wouldn't be any unification. It had to be a slow process, which actually convinced Douglas. Um, so again, thing to remember is what we come back to as well. What was the unique historical catalyst that caused people to risk life, job, and family to free strangers? It's the love of Christ. So the only place where strangers have put their life on the line to free others is a place where Christ is honored. So if the Bible is all about, let's all be slaves and treat people terribly like property, then why is it that Christians in the 19th and 20th centuries led the abolition of it? Now, it still goes on worldwide, but really, really pulled back the worldwide slave trade in a significant way. Um, 
great movie on this. I don't like that they muted his Christianity a little bit more than I wanted, but on Wilberforce, Amazing Grace, fantastic movie on this. It's actually fairly accurate. Like I said, they, they muted his, his Christianity a little more than I wanted to in that, but uh, Amazing Grace is a, it's, uh, generally has some solid, we don't get our history from movies, but it's a, pretty, it's a pretty accurate rendition of this sort of thing. Well, it is 1028, so we will push uh, the Bible oppressive to women next week. Uh, stay tuned. Yeah, go ahead, Duke, as before we pray. Yes. Yes. A Northern European. Yeah. Slav. Slavic people. Yeah. The, the word slave is an English transliteration of Slav, which were the original. Uh, some of the earliest slaves were pulled from Northern Europe. So, uh, again, these are things, unfortunately, we're just not taught um, at all. Uh, they're not even in the discussion. Um, so, again, uh, thank God. It, that that version's abolished. It's a black eye that anybody did that or claimed the name of Christ when the, and that sort of thing. But understanding the difference is really, really important. Um, so how you put that in a question of talking to somebody that thinks you're nuts is to say, have, have you looked at the differences? I'm not trying to soften this thing. I'm just saying, do you know the difference between an ancient slave and a bed in Hebrew or an ancient doulos in Greek and, a, and, and one that was closer to our time period of 200 years ago, 150 years ago? The answer is no. You can say, well, you know, at our church we did look at these sort of things because we take these claims seriously. I don't want to be following a book that says I'm all about oppression. Let's be oppressive. So um, so we looked at that and engaged it. So it's it's worth our time and worth yours to look at it as well. So like I said, this is just a flyover. Uh, there's a lot. There's been full books, about a dozen and a half books, really good books have been written on this subject. I'll give you a chapter um, about the, the what we can verify authentically, historically, even about that, that antebellum pre-war uh, South and the worldwide scenario at the time um, in your email this week. So with that, let's, uh, let's pray. Would you bow? Uh, gracious God, we love you. We thank you for this time. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I ask you to give them an opportunity to have you shine through them this week, Lord, that they can uh, use questions like you did, God. You're, you're the rabbi we follow, that they can use questions uh, to open people up, to clear some of the weeds and the brush away so they can get a clear view of you. I thank you, Holy Spirit, for this cooperative power, and we ask you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope to see you guys next week.